Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're asking, does de-churching begin at home? Stay tuned for the answer or for an answer that one researcher has proposed. But first, snacks on the podcast this year. Brought to you by Dexter out in the sunny Southern California beaches. Man, Dexter, Dexter lived in Omaha for a while. Good I dude. think I met him once. I think I had lunch with him one time. And he, yeah, yeah he, he now lives in California and he just like sent this box of C's candies a couple weeks ago. I was like, hey, this is for the Wednesday conversation. Thanks for what you do, Dexter. Which if you're a listener and you've stood over a box of chocolates before, it's, it's kind of like one of the most stressful decisions you have to make. Bethany was the first to point out they didn't include the little map that tells you which one is which, right. yeah. which some companies do, but I don't know if C's doesn't or if just this assortment doesn't We're just have it. guessing here. There are a lot of different looking chocolates. You here. pop the lid and we all just kind of get paralyzed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no They're one just knows. confident you'll like everything. No one knows what to choose. The last thing you want is like the nasty coconut one. Yes. And you're probably going to get that one if you do. You know, (laughs) that's what you're afraid of. Either way, Dexter, thank you. Dexter, we're not only do we thank you, but I I anticipate that some of the rest of our office team will be enjoying because there's like 50 chocolate. Yeah, there's a lot of chocolate here. Travis Barrett already took a piece. Yeah, by the way, Bethany apparently and Travis have been <laughs> eating our snacks before <laughs> the freaking podcast. What we didn't even know. Seriously. Travis, you just got outed. We're going to have a conversation <laughs> later. Get out of here. All right. Come um, on, man. De-churched. <laughs> uh, we have, uh, so a few, I don't know, weeks, months ago, I always lose track of time passing, but we talked about the great de-churching the book and sort of a research project by Jim Davis and Michael Graham and Ryan Burge that chronicles the, the de-churching trend in America. Can you, what was the episode number, Bethany? That was episode 439. There you go. Episode 439. And uh, you may remember, I'll just summarize the basic details to refresh your memory. But basically since 2000, there's been a steady drop in the number of Americans who identify with a church. Uh, the way they describe it is that 40 million Americans have de-churched over the last 23 years. And that's a pretty significant statistic and a pretty significant movement. So a lot of people since the book came out have been sort of writing about that, talking about that, discussing that. Obviously, church leaders care about that because it it shows us what's happening among our churches. And people who care about broader cultural trends are interested in that because it shows a, a decline of religious um, influence in, in the United States of America. On August 31st, 2023, Lyman Stone wrote a piece at the Institute for Family Studies titled Secularization Begins at Home. And I thought this was a really interesting article. So I sent it out to the team and said, hey, let's make this a topic. Let's talk about this. What Lyman Stone is doing, just to summarize it for you, is he wants to suggest that this problem that's been identified, the problem of de-churching in America, is actually more of a problem of families not passing on the faith to their kids. So he says, I'll read you the first few sentences of the article so you can see sort of the case or the thesis that he wants to put forward. He writes, religiosity in America has been in steady decline for several decades. However, in recent years, the pace at which Americans are leaving church behind 
has dramatically accelerated, as documented in the new book, The Great Dechurching. The book devotes the vast majority of its attention to the experiences of adults or individuals transitioning into adulthood. To read The Great Dechurching, one might suppose that Christianity is declining in America because adults, after considering a range of different concerns, decided church just wasn't for them. But, by basing their book on retrospective surveys of adults, Davis, Graham, and Burge overlook one essential descriptive fact about religion in America. Most of the decline in religion is actually among children, and virtually all of it among people under age 22. Secularization, or what they call de-churching, is happening among children, and then trickling upwards into the general population as those children age. This essential fact suggests that any story of secularization in America has to begin with home life. What changed for children born in the 1980s and 1990s that they never fully absorbed religious belief as children? So the case he's trying to make is, hey, this is a problem of parents and children, not necessarily a problem of adults getting to an adult age and being like, you know what, I'm going to peace out on church. And that's helpful because like, as I even thought about the, the great detergent book, I, my mind immediately goes towards adults. Yeah. Well, and so I will say this, Mike Graham, one of the authors of the great detergent is a friend of mine. So I, I was texting back and forth with him last week because I had read this article and I was like, Hey, did you read Lyman Stone's piece? What'd you think? He, Mike Graham feels like Lyman is confusing the categories of de-churching and secularization. He says, hey, of course the problem of secularization is bigger than the problem of de-churching. So Lyman's talking about secularization, and of course that's connected to what happens at home. We were focused just on the question of de-churching, which is just happening among adults because that's how we defined it. It's just yeah. we're, we're taking a sort of a narrow slice of a bigger problem. So, he, you know, Mike's contention would be he thinks that Lyman Stone here is, is using those two categories as the same thing and saying secularization equals de-churching and de-churching equals secularization. And I think Mike Graham would say, no, no, we're just, we're talking about a smaller category, de-churching, mm -hmm. within a bigger category called secularization. That's fair because he says that. You just read it, secularization or what they call yes. de-churching. So, exactly. Yeah, so that's definitely using the same term. So that's one critique you could make. That's the critique my grandma would say. It's like, yeah, I didn't mean to speak about secularization in the broadest sense. We're just talking about one portion of it. That was a question that I had when I read this article because it did seem like they were talking about more kids as they get older versus here are a subset of adults that have left the church. And so it just seemed like the timeline of things and the, the progression was just in a different spot yes. when I was reading the article. I You're so much smarter than me, Chris, because that's on page two. <laughs> I had to read all eight pages to get there. I suspect you're correct. Although I want to give Lyman Stone credit. He's also a good researcher in his own right. And so yeah. maybe he would have a reason why he would say, no, I think these are more closely aligned than you would think. Let me explain the methodology he uses. So there are two, in social sciences, there are called longitudinal studies, which is, for instance, let's say like, you know, take Chris Hemmelman and say, we've been tracking Chris Hemmelman and all the kids in his grade since second grade. And so even though they're all now adults, every year we reach out to that same group of people and we ask them a set of questions. So what that allows researchers to do is basically say, over time, how do people's beliefs change? So there are a few studies like that. And Lyman Stone is basing his analysis here on some of those longitudinal studies. And what he notes is that when you 
when you trace people who end up in their teenage years or early adulthood to be non-religious or to say they're not interested in God anymore, most non-religious children, he writes, are born into religious households and lose their faith while under the supervision of parents who believe that they are successfully transmitting their religious values. So he's saying what the data shows is that you don't just like turn 25 and decide to stop going to church. Actually, what happens is when you're 15, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm into this. My parents want me to go to church, but I don't really like it anymore. And so he's just saying like, this is happening while kids are still living in the household with their parents. It's not like, it's not a switch that flips at age 30. It's something that's taking place while parents think that they are transmitting the faith to their kids. The kids, meanwhile, are identifying, yeah, I'm not into my religion anymore. What's fascinating is, so he, he can trace that, you know, statistically in these, in these studies. What's fascinating to me, Dusty, is it tracks anecdotally with what I've seen in a lot of families. Yeah. I've totally. been in pastoral ministry for 25 years, and I would say I've seen repeatedly Christian parents who think they're doing a great job passing the faith on to their kids. Meanwhile, I know their kids, and I'm like, yeah. Your kid isn't into this like you hope your kid is into it. Yeah. Now, of course, each person has to embrace the faith for themselves, and that's a natural part of growing up. But it is interesting to me that I, I can point to a number of stories where what the parents thought was being imparted and what the kids were actually taking in were quite different. And everybody kind of knew it except for the parents, it feels like. yeah, <laughs> The parents are like, my kids love Jesus. I'm like, no, your kid does not love Jesus. And it I'm usually sorry. comes down to a discipleship, what I always call caught, not taught issue, mm-hmm. not a didactic. Did we take our kid to church on Sunday morning? That is important. And it is a piece of discipleship, but your kid isn't just going to get it that way. Right. So let's come back to that. Let me finish the article and then we'll come back and talk about some of the application of this for parents. Lyman Stone writes, it should be clear by now that childhood, including before age 13, is the key battleground for religious formation, not adulthood. By the time a child goes to college, much of the religious question has already been settled. That's an important line. We'll come back to it. The decline in religiosity we've seen across America in the 2000s and 2010s, especially among young people, isn't driven by a loss of faith among adults in that period. It appears to be driven by a failure by parents to pass on the faith in the 1990s and 2000s. He gets now to his conclusion of the article, and he writes, Secularization, or de-churching in America, is proceeding very swiftly. Millennials are one of the largest birth cohorts in recent history, or since, and their parents were uniquely unsuccessful at passing on their faith to their children. As a result, huge shares of young adults today had at least nominally religious upbringings, lost confidence in that religion sometime before age 22, and now form a large mass of today's non-religious adults. Bethany, are you a millennial? I am. He's talking about you, your people. He's like, yep, these millennials, (laughs) their parents were not successful (laughs) passing on faith. I feel like he's kind of singling out your parents. I don't know what it was about your generation's parents, but... He seems to say you're uniquely unsuccessful. His stats are higher there. I don't know what the deal is. 
So now he wants to give us as parents. So he's just saying that's the descriptive data. That's what the data shows is that for the people who de-churched in the 2000s and 2010s, that was, he feels like, due mostly to the failure of their parents to pass on the faith. What's fascinating about that, Bethany, is I do feel like I know lots of millennials who would say, yeah, a lot of my friends are not going to church anymore Mm -hmm. or don't believe in God anymore or have kind of abandoned the faith. I just, I feel like I hear that frequently from that cohort of people. And I don't think that means it's specific to them, but I I do think that's a common storyline. I'm, this is anecdotal, but I'm thinking of the, my own friend group growing up. And I, my last three years of high school, I was at a Christian school. And I think of those in my class and these are, I don't, I haven't kept in touch with everyone in my class, but I think of those in my class that I know who took their faith seriously at that time, they are following Jesus now Hmm. versus some that weren't. I mean, I I know there are some who you could just tell it was, it wasn't quite quick and clicking like the parents thought, send my kid to a Christian school and just where they are in their faith is just an entirely different place. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anyone who was struggling in their faith then and now is on fire for God. So I, I think it just anecdotally what kind of how he's setting it up. It's sort of the decision has been made at a certain age. I, I've seen it play out. Okay, Chris, to use that anecdote as a jumping off point, because I think this is what you're getting at too, Dusty. One of my concerns as a pastor is you use the language of caught, not taught. I think part of why we've built the philosophy of ministry at Cormdale the way we have is because I am convinced that a lot of parents of my generation, so my friend's parents, I guess is what I'm saying, parents of my parents' generation, were content to believe that if they dropped their kids off at youth group, things would be fine. And what they undervalued was (laughs) the day-by-day, life-on-life, faithful discipleship to Jesus within the household that actually is the most important thing. And so I do not want to lead a church where parents think, if I just drop my kid off at Sunday school or youth group or student ministry or whatever, I'm doing my job. Yeah. Because I think this article would suggest, nope, you're definitely not. There's a paragraph in here where Lyman Stone gives some counsel and advice to those of us who are parents. He writes, for parents to keep their kids in the faith, they must recapture their influence. Shield children from schooling environments that relegate faith to a second-class topic. Deny access to unsupervised online communities and pornography. And have daily parent-led activities centered on family solidarity around shared faith. Families that do these things have extremely high rates of successful religious transmission. But families who trust that children will pick it up along the way fail to transmit their religious beliefs. So I think it's interesting that he talks about education, he talks about online activity, and he talks about daily parent-led faith activities, solidarity. Those seem to be three practices that, it, that do make a pretty significant difference in the spiritual temperature of a household, let's just say. This past summer, I, I did a, a week-long, Monday through Friday, parenting seminar at this conference. And on Monday, I said, let me tell you everything you need to know about parenting here in a couple sentences. Your kids need to see you loving Jesus and cultivating your walk with Christ 
and then they will probably follow Christ. And so I think the the thing I would add here or just lay on top of it is just your kids need to, their kids are looking to their parents and taking their, their cues spiritually from them. Is this just like a worldview you have or do you, are you in love with Christ? Are you wrestling with your scriptures? Are you, so that's what's, that's what kids are picking up on. Uh, also, interestingly enough, in this article, one of the highlights is that childhood, including before age 13, is the key battleground for religious formation, as you've been talking about. Having read this a few days ago, I decided, you know, I'm going to get on X, also known as Twitter. <laughs> Formerly <laughs> known as Twitter. Yeah. I just can't call it X. It's just, yeah, oh. don't, it sounds bad. Please don't call it that. Feels like, on X. feels like Musk wins if I call it X. Seriously. So back on the, tw- back on the Twitter uh, and on Facebook, I just did a quick poll and I just said, hey, parents, at what age or, or at what age do you plan to give your kid a cell phone? And then I just said, hey, don't give me all your commentary. I don't really care about that. I just care about an age based on this article. The average age was 12 and a half. 55 responded. 12 and a half is the average age, which, which is just interesting if it's before age 13 is the key battleground for religious formation, if my family culture is already not very dense in Christian discipleship, or if I'm just hoping my kids, kids, you know, will trust Christ and I hand them a phone. I just think that that's interesting data. Yeah. It is. One of the things I thought as I read this article is that I have a tendency to be biased in my thinking toward adults. I'm always thinking about preaching to adults, discipling adults, I I think this article is a tremendous apologetic for kids' ministry and student ministry because what it suggests is churches have to be coming alongside parents and helping them do spiritual formation, catechism, and faith formation in kids and students because that is a very crucial age. And if we don't do that well and if families don't do that well, we can expect de-churching as a result. Um, obviously, theologically, this isn't taking out the necessity of being born again by the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty of God, the you know personal faith in Christ, all that stuff. We're obviously talking about sociological dynamics here, not necessarily theological ones. But I, I think it's clear that the data shows that a lack of good catechism in the family and in the church does not bear good fruit in the long run. And so it was. In, I, I sent this to, to our team just saying like, guys, this, man, this is why we do kids ministry is because these ages mm-hmm. matter in terms of like taking hold of the faith and really believing in Christ and walking with him for the long term and thinking well about the gospel, thinking yeah. well about the scriptures, you know, not just parroting and regurgitating stuff that you see adults doing, but really wrestling through your own convictions, your own questions. Who is God? What does it mean for me to be made in his image? Who is Jesus? What does it mean for me to trust him? Those are the kinds of things we got to help young people think about. And this article is just a great apologetic for if we don't do that well, we're just signing up for a lot more de-churching in the future. Yeah. So to your point, something cool that has happened at First City recently is, uh, so we have a person on our staff who's our director of liturgy, leads worship, but also one of his gifting is in leading, helping to equip parents for family worship as well. So him and then a dad in our church who has uh, a desire to see dads grow in discipling their kids at home, cultivating that, that caught piece at home. Uh, they recently started a, essentially a book study, but just a discipleship group 
that meets at the same time that our student ministry, so it's basically the dads of those who have kids in student ministry, uh, junior, junior high and high school, meet at the same time at our church building, and they're going through content. How do I grow as a dad who leads my family in this, as I, you know, cultivating something at home? And, and so they're, they're going through a book, but they're also like encouraging each other, challenging each other, learning and equipping one another. But it's for that point of, hey, at home, this matters. And, and you dig a little bit deeper into that. What matters even more is the dad in, in that yeah. aspect of it as well. And so it was really cool to see how that happened and came together because this kind of thing, as you read the, these things in that first city, we have kids coming out of our ears. Like it's just like kids everywhere and it's beautiful, <laughs> but it's also given us this burden of, Hey, not only do we need to have a good thing going on Sunday mornings or, you know, first city students or, uh, whatever, whatever the kind of those programs, but what are we doing at home? How are we equipping parents? And so we felt this increasing burden for that. And so I think as leaders, those are our listeners, how are you both doing the kind of the teaching in your gathering? So you have your Sundays and you have maybe other contexts, but also how are you equipping your parents? How are you giving energy towards helping moms and dads grow and cultivate that kind of culture. Cause the other thing at our church is we have so many first generation Christians. A lot of these parents did not see it happen at home. And so they're asking the question, what does this even look like? So those of you that have grew up in those kinds of homes or have learned over time need to share that because you're probably around a lot of first generation Christians that want this, but don't even know how to do it. Dude, all day. That's me. And I would just say to those people, just do stuff. Yeah. Like <laughs> it doesn't have to be perfect. Just get out the Bible and read it. Yeah, yeah. That's family discipleship. Yes. I want to reinforce two things. One, I'm provoked by this sentence where he says, most non-religious children are born into religious households and lose their faith while under the supervision of parents who believe that they are successfully transmitting their religious values. That just says to me that we as parents need to be wise about, are we actually accomplishing the things we hope we are accomplishing. And I don't say that to drive anxiety. I think parents are already nervous about like, are my kids going to love Jesus? So I don't want to create more anxiety yeah, around that. Yeah. But I do want to, what I think that suggests is your kids need other people in their lives who can take a pulse and help you as a parent know, hey man, your kid seems like they're taking on the faith for themselves. Or, hey, I have some concerns about whether your child is understanding the gospel and really walking with Christ. And the importance of other mentors and adults and influencers that are part of the local church yeah. that are investing in the lives of kids, especially in those teenage years seems really important to me because it's evident from this article that I can think I'm doing things as a parent that aren't actually happening out there in the data. Yeah. This is why community is so essential. I need other moms and dads around me because I can't see my own face, right? Is what Paul mm -hmm. Tripp says. So I got to, I need Chris to be like, Hey man, uh, your kid looks a little bit off the rails. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe he is, you know, like I, I don't know. So I gotta, I, that's what community does. And to humbly receive it, not immediately become defensive as if I, th that correction is that you're feeling as a parent. It's like, no, Hey, I actually want to help you thrive. So I think it's important for parents. If you have those people, you should have those people, but let them speak into your child's life. Let them speak into your parenting to help you grow. Don't, don't take it as like a threat to your, the entirety of your parenting. Here's the other thing that provokes me about this article. I think there's this myth in evangelicalism. That's like, you know what? 
our kids are fine until they go to college, and you send them yeah. off to send them off yeah. to Lincoln oh, or Iowa yeah. State, and those liberal professors are just going to ruin them. They're just going to assault their faith, and you know what this article says is: by the time a child goes to college, much of the religious questions already been settled. Yeah, and so what I think is fascinating about that is just like you know what the battleground isn't their freshman year at UNO when they're in psychology 101. The battleground is when they're 13 or 14 and living in your house and have a smartphone and some friends who aren't following Jesus and, you know, are interested in lots of what other people think about them. Those are the moments that matter, I think, most. And so it's just funny to me that like this little myth we have of like, you know what, we raised our kid great till they were 17 and then we shipped them off to the secular university down the street and they ruined them and now they're not a Christian. We're like, well... It might not be quite that easy of a narrative, friends. <laughs> there might be more need for us to look at ourselves and go, how are we actually doing in the spiritual formation of our kids and youth? Chris, did you ever do college ministry? No. Bob and I did college ministry. I used to call those phone calls, uh, the save my kid phone calls. Mm-hmm. We'd get random moms calling us. Never a dad, really. No, but usually a, mom, a concerned mom. You know, She would call our church. Their kid had never been to our church a day in their life. <laughs> their kid did not even want to go and to our like, church. Like, hey, uh, my kid's at UNO, and would you reach out to him? And they mean well, and I understand why I they do that. Do. You know, like I got college age kids now, so I could see why those phone calls would happen. And I used to respond with, uh, "No, your son or daughter is old enough to vote, and so I'm going to give you my phone number, and you can give them that. <laughs> and if they're interested <laughs> in us meeting." then they'll call, you yeah. know? And I understand the, the save my kid phone call, but yeah, the, this article is saying all that was decided under your roof. Yeah. And I think that's good. You know, again, I'm not trying to, I think there's so much anxiety around parenting. I want to be careful that parents don't walk out for this with like more burdens of like, oh gosh, maybe I'm failing even more than I think. But I do want to raise the importance of, man, the time under your roof and the culture of your household and the way you engage in the life of the local church and participate in community is so crucial and important for the healthy faith formation of your kids. And every kid's going to have their own struggles, their own challenges, their own identity issues and learnings. And, you know, they're, they're going to have to go live their own journey. But the best thing we can do for them is establish a healthy robust gospel foundation underneath them. And it's hard to overemphasize how crucial the years at home are for that happening. And so I just want this article to encourage parents to excel still more and and give the appropriate weight to the work we're doing while kids are 15 and younger. Because those are really, you know, we tend to think, I think there's a naive way of thinking that kind of goes like the older kid gets the more sort of like, you know, they do their own thing. But this article is suggesting, no, actually, many of these kids, while they're still at very formative ages, are starting to ask questions about, like, what do I think about God? And what do I believe about the Bible? And um, the ones who end up de-churching started that journey when they were 13, 14, 15, um, and still living at your house. Setting your kid up to walk with Christ, I think, having done it a couple times now that I have some older kids, is a lot easier than it's than you think. Yeah. So Bob, just to speak to some of that anxiety that people might be feeling, I just want to I just want to lay out. I'm curious for you, Chris, Bob, Bethany, what are some of the top things that you would do with your kid? Here's some of mine. Uh, just vamping off of a. This is like 
years back, Bob, you said this, we need to know the apostles creed, the Lord's prayer, the 10 commandments. I would just add to some of that stuff. Like if your kid understands Romans or at least maybe they can't understand the whole book, but at least Romans three, five, six, seven, and eight, Isaiah 53, uh, they, there's just certain basic catechism things they should understand. And then they need to see that implemented into, into their parents' life and into their peers' life in a really genuine way. What are some other things that you would add to that? The way he says it in this article, I thought was interesting, Dusty. He says one of the keys is having daily parent-led activities centered on family solidarity around shared faith. That's an interesting way of phrasing it. And it made me think of years ago, we talked about the importance of like the family table or like having a mm-hmm. meal, to, like just cultivating like, hey, let's eat together. Let's talk about the day. Family solidarity grounded in shared faith. So it's not like, hey kids, now's the time we read the Bible. Cause like, that's when every kid gets squirrely and is like, really do we have to, you know? Yeah. But it's just like cultivating a family culture and family solidarity that has at the heart of it, we're a family that loves and follows Jesus and honors the scriptures. That seems to be the the thing. So that can look a lot of different ways. That right. can be family vacations. That can be family meals. That can be, you know, anything that sort of cultivates a sense of like a family culture where Jesus is at the heart of it. That That's really crucial. And yep. those things do not have to be complicated no. and they're not hard to pull off. They just, they just require some element of intentionality in your schedule. So I love that, Dusty, you're emphasizing some good theological foundation. Like you want to teach kids the, the, a robust faith, a robust um, theology to understand who the Lord is and, and to teach them and show them like the Bible is this amazing book and just the, the ins and outs of scripture and things. But one of the things that, as I was thinking, that came to mind is I think of friends of mine or I think of folks at First City Church, who maybe their their faith, like the form of Christianity they have embraced is maybe a bit different from their parents. So maybe they're, they're more in a reformed tradition or their view of the gifts or view of baptism. In some way, the intellectual framework has changed a bit, but what they have and what they appreciate is like, my parents love Jesus. Yep. yep. So I, I yep. may have shifted some of my theological beliefs, but what my parents taught me was to be devoted to Jesus, to love Jesus, to pray, to confess, to trust him. Like, so, so there is this sense of just seeing your kids, seeing you adore Christ and yes. to, to practice a, a living relationship with Christ in front of them. I, I think that is going to have the deep impact. So yes, teach them theology, give them a robust faith, but also recognize them seeing you love Jesus and that Jesus actually is a real person to you is what really is going to to stick and to really affect them. Yeah, I was basically going to say essentially the same thing that you just said, Chris. Um, and I think I would add that being available to talk about, just like talk about that. Yeah, I think that's the thing that as I'm thinking about millennials, I'll speak on behalf of millennials. <laughs> yeah, there it is. You are now representing, representing yeah. millennials everywhere. I mean, I, I'm like going back to my my church experience, and I just felt like a, you know a lot of youth group stuff was just focused on behavior modification. Don't do these things, but really no explanation for like why should I live my life a different way or why why should I not do these things. Um, and I'm super thankful that my mom was just always kind of talking through those things with us, like helping us understand 
why maybe that wouldn't be wise to live that way or participate in these activities or whatever. Um, so I just think like also being just like emotionally available to your kids and not, and not, (laughs) not being emotionally available. Um, that was, that's important. And just knowing that your kids can come to you and talk to you about what it looks like for you to live out your faith or what it might look like for them to live out their faith. Um, yeah. And when we talk about live out the faith, I just had a conversation today that made me think of this. The, the language I prefer to use is leading out of your own need for grace. Mm-hmm. Your kids have to see that yeah. you need the grace of Christ, mm-hmm. that you need to repent of your sin, that you need forgiveness, that you are a fallen human being with failures and faults and flaws that require the grace of Jesus. If kids see that generally, that's what they pick up. It's like, oh, fallen human beings can be redeemed and changed by Jesus. If what they pick up are, here's the rules we follow here, or I'm the bad kid who must need Jesus, but my parents don't seem to have any problems. (laughs) Neither of those things tend to go very well later in life. So leading out of our own need for grace, this is why gospel centrality matters so much is because the, the only way I think kids get a right understanding of grace is if they grew up in a household where like, my parents needed grace. They had to apologize and ask for my forgiveness. They sinned against me or against each other. And I watched them humble themselves and ask for forgiveness. And that that was normal. Like I, that didn't surprise anyone. You know, these people are flawed and they need Christ. And that to me is the thing that parents yeah. have to have to live out in front of their kids. All right. Well, we'll stop there for this week's episode. And so I hope if you want to read this article, we'll post it in the show notes. Um, again, it's kind of like a a take on one aspect of the dechurching phenomenon. So it does connect to that episode um, a few weeks ago where we talked about the great dechurching. But you can go read the article for yourself if you want to. And um, moms and dads, we we do pray, those of you who are raising kids and trying to raise them in the faith, uh, we pray for God's grace and kindness on your efforts. And for all of us within the local church, let's uh, redouble uh, our focus on the importance of, man, healthy kids ministry and healthy student ministry. These things matter deeply. And for all of you who serve in those ways in the church, thanks for what you do. Tune in next week for a major Wednesday conversation announcement. You're going to want to be listening. One week from today, we got two things, a major announcement and a major snack delivery. We already know it's on the calendar. It's already been promised. Better show up. Both those things coming next week. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Wednesday Conversation.